0: The title of this morning's message is Emmanuel and oh so much more. (laughs) This morning I want to share with you some of the scriptures found in Isaiah that foretold the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And hopefully we will come away from this message with our hearts being inspired to know our Jesus even better. I love how Fred got all over my message. Tap dancing all over my message. (laughs) Most of us here know Jesus personally. We know his transforming love. We know his tender care within our hearts. And we know his intervention into our daily lives. In other words, we know him intimately. And even though we know him intimately and personally, there's always so much more for us to see and understand about all that he is and about all that he has done and about how our Father has orchestrated and accomplished our salvation through Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. That's a whole lot of orchestration. (laughs) All of it was prophesied and brought to fulfillment so that we can know him. And that's why we celebrate Jesus and our salvation at Christmas, because we know him. And that was always God's plan, that we would know him and understand his true identity. Understanding Jesus' true identity begins, not by looking into a manger, but by looking into the old covenant prophecies. Our father wanted and needed to announce the identity of the Christ beforehand, because humans can be a little thick headed, <laughs> even those humans who believe in God. <laughs> even today, they are theologians and biblical scholars who will not believe in the virgin birth of Christ. And in so doing, they don't actually realize they're denying that Jesus was, in fact, God himself. Which is why our Father foretold his plan to Israel through the prophets, so that when Jesus did show up, those whose hearts were toward God could see the fulfillment of the scriptures right before their eyes. And then they could begin to understand who Jesus really was and is, and what he actually came to accomplish, because it was really all hidden. It is that hindsight is twenty twenty. <laughs> so this morning, we're going to look into the book of Isaiah, specifically chapters 7 and 9, where we find several very famous prophecies regarding the identity of Christ and some of the circumstances that would surround his birth. In chapter 7, we find the prophet Isaiah is sent to King Ahaz of Judah to deliver a message from God regarding the threats against him from the king of Syria and the king of Israel. Lots of kings. At that time, the nation of Israel was divided. The northern ten tribes were called Israel or Ephraim because Ephraim was the largest of those tribes. And the southern tribes were called Judah because Judah was the largest tribe of those two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Israel as a whole became divided, and there were two kingdoms, and they were openly against each other. (laughs) They didn't like each other. (laughs) One was not more holy than the other, but they thought they were. (laughs) And because of that, another king, the king of Syria, tried to get the king of Israel from the northern tribes to join him in overtaking King Ahaz of Judah. And we can see this beginning in verse 5 of chapter 7. I have it for you in the easy-to-read version, and it begins with God speaking to Isaiah. God says, tell Ahaz, be careful, but be calm. Don't be afraid. Don't let those two men, Ritzim and Remaliah, the actual Hebrew is Yahoo. I thought I can just call him Yahoo for short. <laughs> Don't let Rezim and Yahu's son frighten you. They are like two burning sticks. They might be hot now, but soon they will be nothing but smoke. Ritzim, Aram, and Yahu's son became angry and made plans against you. And they said, let's go fight against Judah and divide it among ourselves. Then we will make Tabeel's son be the new king of Judah. But the Lord God says, their plan will not succeed. Damascus is the capital of Aram. Rezim is the ruler of Damascus for now. Samaria is the capital of Ephraim. And Yahu's son is the ruler of Samaria for now. But their plan will not happen. If you don't believe this, you will not survive. Now this is God having a conversation with Isaiah. And Isaiah is relaying that conversation to King Ahaz. And he says, let me tell you what's going on. He's reading his mail. These guys have a plan against you. This is what they're planning to do. But their plan won't actually succeed. They weren't going to be able to actually overtake Judah. But he says, but if you don't believe this, you won't survive. God's point here is that regardless of whether King Ahaz believes the Lord or not, his enemy's plans will not come to pass. God knows this. (laughs) God foresees this. God decreed this. But that doesn't guarantee that King Ahaz will survive what his enemies plan to do to his kingdom. Verse 10, Then the Lord spoke to Ahaz again and said, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God to prove to yourself that this is true. You can ask for any sign you want. The sign can come from a place as deep as Sheol or as high as the skies. And Ahaz says, I will not ask for a sign as proof. I will not test the Lord. Do you hear the self righteousness? <laughs> At first glance, this might sound very religiously virtuous. Oh, I won't tempt the Lord. But in actuality, he was an unbelieving scoundrel, and God put him on the spot and says, Are you going to believe me or not? Give me an opportunity to convince you that what I say is true. Ask me for a sign. No, I'm much too righteous for that. <laughs> Then Isaiah said, family of David or house of David, listen very carefully. Is it not enough that you would test the patience of humans? Will you now test the patience of my God? Israel's like, how stupid can you be? (laughs) You want to trust yourself instead of God who knows everything. Really? Do you know the future? Because God does and he's offering you a reason to believe and to trust in his word and his power. But since you won't choose, God will choose for you. (laughs) Verse 14, but the Lord will still show you this sign. A young woman slash virgin is or will be pregnant and will give birth to a son. And his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now I left the young woman slash virgin is or will be pregnant in here. I added those words. Because lots of people want to make an argument against the virgin birth that this word for young woman means just that, young woman. And that doesn't mean an actual virgin. And it doesn't mean that a virgin will actually conceive. It doesn't mean that. It's just a young woman. You can make that case because the word there is not specifically virgin. However, young Jewish women were highly protected. <laughs> if you were a young Jewish woman, you were a virgin. <laughs> That's all there is to it. But this is a sign. So the, the sign isn't for us today. This was a sign for Ahaz back then. So this was for a sign back at that point in time. So in this context, it's not about a miraculous conception 700 years later. Don't worry, we'll get around to the miraculous. (laughs) But it's about the foreknowledge of God, who knew that a young unmarried woman would become pregnant and have a son and would name him Emmanuel. That was Ahaz's sign. Now, Isaiah doesn't explain this to Ahaz or to his readers (laughs) so many scholars believe that it referred to someone in Ahaz's own house since it's for Ahaz's benefit that there would be a young woman who would marry and become pregnant and have a son and unwittingly without knowing the circumstances would name her child Emmanuel which would continually confirm that what God has spoken was true nice little reminder in front of your face all the time (laughs) (laughs) But there are also some scholars who believe the young woman was someone that Isaiah was betrothed to. And again, he's operating in foreknowledge. Yes, I have a betrothed woman over here. We haven't come together yet. We're going to come together, she's going to have a child, and we're going to name him Emmanuel. Either way, it's a sign because Isaiah is a prophet to Judah. That means he's going to spend an awful lot of time in the king's court. And who do you think he's going to bring with him? (laughs) The sign. (laughs) Now, the point was, God knew the future. And he was willing to help an awful, wicked, horrible king, King Ahaz, to believe him and to trust him. But this awful, horrible, wicked King Ahaz had already planned his own way of escape. Now God's already told him, these guys got a plan against you. That was true. He's like, I'll handle this myself. I got this God. I don't need you. (laughs) King Ahaz had taken money from the temple. Not the king's treasuries, but God's treasuries (laughs) and had sent it to yet another king. The king of Assyria and asked him to come to his aid to overcome the king of Israel and the king of Samaria. He got his own ally. All the while not realizing what God had said would happen would actually happen exactly as he said he would. Literally. <laughs> Isaiah had told King Ahaz that before the same child, remember the sign for Ahaz? Before that same child knew the difference between right and wrong, and they're estimating age three-ish, that Assyria, his ally, would completely betray King Ahaz and come and devastate the land of Judah. And, of course, this is exactly what happened. But God also promised hope for those who would believe in the sign, Emmanuel. Not the child, but the God who is God with us. Now, God has a way of speaking through people, even though they don't realize that he's speaking through them. For example, Fred today. <laughs> His was the opening to my message, that we may know him. Now, what, is the, what are the chances that Fred would get up and say the same kind of things that i'm going to say right after him very slim but why does god do this because it's a sign (laughs) you heard me this is the truth it is a sign that you keep hearing he always confirms his word often very often god talks to people even though they don't realize he's talking to them and we can see this in John chapter 11, beginning with verse 45. But before I go there, let me tell you a little story that I wasn't planning to tell. A long time ago, God told me that He had picked a, a person for me to marry, Mark Testerman. Mark Testerman was unaware of this. <laughs> anyway, it didn't matter that Mark Testerman was unaware of this. <laughs> And I had asked for a sign! Actually, God asked me for a sign, but that's a whole other story. God was talking to me and he was confirming his word that Mark Testerman was indeed the person he had chosen for me, even though Mark Testerman didn't have a clue that he had been chosen for me. (laughs) Uh, The year my daughter and my my eldest son got married, they got married one month apart and at my daughter's wedding. This person that I know from uh, forever, he was a nice Catholic boy. But he he didn't understand being born again. But he came, to of course, to my daughter's wedding because he is her godfather. (laughs) And he says to me, you should get married, too. In fact, you should do it all in one year. You, your daughter, your son, and you, you should get married all within a space of one year. And that is exactly what God had told me, that all three of us would be married within one year. Then the first wedding we went to was in April. Guess when Mark and I got married in April the following year. God knows the future. (laughs) And He loves to give us signs so that we can trust Him. Now, we don't want to go around demanding certain kinds of signs from God. God, if this is you, let the rain fall, let the lightning strike. Don't tell God what kind of sign He needs to give you. He has the perfect sign. (laughs) He has the perfect confirmation. The point is, He knows the future, and he can be trusted. Again, we can see this concept in John chapter 11, beginning with verse 45. I have it in the ESV version. Now, to set up this this passage, you have to understand that this is right after Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and the chief priests and Pharisees are mad about it, (laughs) beginning with verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, Martha's sister, and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done, paddle tales. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everybody will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, Caiaphas said that which was true according to God. Even though that wasn't what Caiaphas meant. (laughs) Caiaphas meant better him than us. (laughs) But that didn't matter. Because as high priest, Caiaphas had the authority to speak blessing or cursing over the people. What Caiaphas meant as a curse upon Christ was actually the mercy and blessing of God being spoken over the Jews, that the Christ was choosing to lay down his life in order to spare and rescue all who would believe on him. So in the same way, God spoke through Isaiah regarding an actual virgin, (laughs) not just someone soon to be married, who would conceive and bear a son, and who would name their child Emmanuel, which is God with us. And we know from the Gospel of Matthew that the Holy Spirit unveiled the hidden truth within the Old Testament scripture by using a very specific Greek word that only means virgin, <laughs> in the way we understand it. A young unmarried woman who has never been intimate with a man. And on top of that, we have the word of an angel from God. I think they are probably more uh, have more authority and accountability than some theologian somewhere in the world. (laughs) We have a word from an angel of God who revealed the truth that an actual virgin would be miraculously pregnant and as still a virgin would bring forth a son who would be the fulfillment of God with us. And of course we can see this in Matthew chapter 1 beginning with verse 20. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph is from the Holy Spirit. And he will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His name means Yahweh saves Jesus. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin, an actual virgin, <laughs> shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from a sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but he knew her not again on purpose. (laughs) He knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name, Jesus. Now these scriptures make it very clear that Mary was physically a virgin when the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and that she remained physically a virgin until the birth of Christ. The scriptures leave no room for Mary's child to be an ordinary child. Instead, he was miraculously just what Isaiah foretold he would be. God with us. He is the Emmanuel that Isaiah prophesied about. And not only is he Emmanuel, but he is, oh, so much more. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, will do this. Another story I didn't plan. (laughs) Once after the Lord had told me that he had picked Mark for me, at that time, Mark's religious upbringing had ingrained in him that once you were divorced, you could never get married again. And so that's what Mark believed. And I was like, "Uh, if he's chosen for me and he believes this, how are you going to work this out, Lord? (laughs) And the Lord said, if I can convince Joseph, that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, I can convince anyone of anything. You see, nobody knew like Mary. The closest you could get was Joseph, who had a word from an angel. <laughs> Those two knew, but nobody knew like Mary. And if, if God can convince Joseph that his betrothed wife, who went away for three months and came back pregnant, <laughs> was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, he can convince anyone of anything. <laughs> and the proof is in the pudding. He's my husband. <laughs> now, these verses are actually in the midst of a whole bunch of judgment, before it and after it. Isaiah speaks of judgment, but then he throws this in there. And this is because God wanted them to know, yes, you're going to reap some of your sowing, but that's not the end. I have a plan, and it's a good plan. So the context is actually hope, because in chapter eight, Isaiah prophesies regarding all of the destruction that will soon come upon Assyria and Israel, the bad guys, and then eventually Judah at the hand of their ally, the Assyrians. And we can see this in verses six and eight of chapter eight. Because of this, the people had refused the waters of Shiloh from Jerusalem, that flow gently and rejoice over Ritzim and the son of Yahu. (laughs) <laughs> Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all of his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on to Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even up to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel." That's a funny place for this word. <laughs> scholars are divided on why it's used here. One is that God is with the Assyrians because he's using them to bring forth their judgment because they were very wicked. The other one is that Isaiah is saying this is all going to happen and those who are righteous and believe the sign God is with us we don't have to worry. So you get to choose but what I like is you see all of this symbolic language that portrayed a real event. The Assyrians weren't bringing a flood with them, they were just bringing a flood of of destruction with them. So it's all very symbolic. So it depends on how you want to understand. I think here Isaiah said, O Emmanuel, God is with us. He's saying that because those who believe don't have to worry. King Ahaz and the land of Judah were going to experience some pretty devastating consequences for their unfaithfulness. But there was still hope for the land of Judah and the land of Emmanuel and the the land that was called God with us. God still had a plan for Israel and Judah and none of the kings of Assyria, Israel or Syria could stop God's plan. And we can see this in the next two verses, 9 and 10 of chapter 8. This is still God speaking be broken you peoples, be shattered, give ear, all you four countries, strap on your armor and be shattered, strap on your armor and be shattered, take counsel together, in other words, go ahead and join forces against Judah, go ahead, <laughs> but it will come to nothing, speak a word, make a plan, it will not stand, for God is with us, God is with Judah, God is with the land of Judah, God is saying that he is still with the land and the tribe of Judah to protect her from the complete destruction she actually deserved. Because God still had a plan for his Emmanuel to come from her. So God has Isaiah prophesy regarding the expected end, their hope, their future. And we can see this in chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. But there will be an end to the gloom those people suffered. The land of Judah he's talking about. In the past, people thought the land of Zebulun and Naphtali was not important. But later, that land will be honored. The land along the sea, the land east of the Jordan River, and Galilee, where the people from other nations live. Those people lived in darkness, but they will see a great light. They live in a place as dark as death, but a great light will shine on them. And of course, that light is Christ, their Messiah, their King, and their very great Deliverer. And Isaiah knows that this passage refers to the Christ. And we can find the fulfillment of this prophecy in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee, speaking of Jesus. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in that region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, Matthew reveals the validity of the prophecy. You don't recognize the prophecy in its original context you recognize it in its fulfillment and of course that's what Matthew shows us that it was indeed fulfilled just the way God said it would be again just the way God said it would be (laughs) continuing in verse 3 of Isaiah 9 God you will make the nation grow and you will make the people happy they will rejoice in your presence as they do at the harvest And it will be like joy when the people take their share of things that they have won in war. He's talking about, again, looking forward to when the Christ would come. And he's telling them, yes, there's destruction coming for this land. But there is hope. There is a future. There is a promise that will be fulfilled. And you're going to be ecstatic about it. (laughs) Both harvest time and wartime are hard times. Both harvest time and wartime are hard times. But there are hard times with reward and great joy when God is in them, blessing them with his presence and his goodness. Verse 4. That will happen because you will lift the heavy yoke off their shoulders and take away their heavy burden. You will take away the rod that the enemy used to punish your people, as you did when you defeated Midian. Love this part. (laughs) I love that Isaiah gives credit to God instead of to Gideon and his 300 men because Gideon's victory was a miraculous victory. It was escorted by literal light breaking into the midst of literal darkness. When Gideon's men smashed open their lamps as they began to attack, that's when the light broke through. It was a physical demonstration of the power of God's light to overcome the power of any and all darkness. So Isaiah foresees a miraculous and complete victory given to God's people beginning with the light breaking into the darkness. And then through the power of God, all the power of their enemies would be defeated. And this is our Emmanuel. This was the Jewish Emmanuel that he was telling them about. This is the one God will be with us. Verse 5, every boot that marched in battle and every uniform stained with blood will be destroyed and thrown into the fire. This speaks of a bonfire celebrating their newfound peace where their garments of war are no longer needed so they are triumphantly thrown into the fire because their enemies have been soundly defeated. This too is our Emmanuel. All of our enemies have been defeated through the cross of Jesus Christ. We can triumph in every situation and declare the triumph because he's already done it for us. This is the joy that he's speaking of. This is the joy that he's prophesying about. Then this brings us back to the most famous verses of chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And I have it in the very familiar King James. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, To order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord, the zeal of Yahweh, Sebeoth, will perform this. Now, scholars believe that this passage of scripture was actually a poem written by someone else from a much earlier time in history. But that Isaiah, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, inserted it here in reference to the Messiah. They also believed that verses 6 and 7 would have been sung, but not at the birth of a royal heir, but at the new king's succession to the throne. And when a new king was seated on his throne, he was thought to become an adopted son of God, who would rule as doing the will of God. Which is why Isaiah could write these words, and yet the Jews actually not understand the literalness of the prophecy. Calling someone a son of God didn't mean the same thing to them that it means to us. He knows he's prophesying about the coming king. He'll be a son of God. Well, Nero called himself a son of God. Leaders, kings around the world always identified with a particular God. I'm a son of. That was their identity. So we look at this and go, what? (laughs) You can't see this? You don't recognize this? But it was hidden from them. And it's only seen in the fulfillment. So just like with the prophecy of the virgin conceiving, they didn't take God's words literally, even though God knew that his plan and word would literally come to pass. Also, traditionally, when a new king was seated on his throne, he was given throne names. They gave the kings five titles. This was an ordinary thing that happened when you became a king. So the five following titles are Messiah's throne names again verse 6, for unto us a child is born. Before we go to the throne names, Isaiah starts by telling us that this special child will be born into the tribe of Judah and in the land of Judah because it says for unto us, this is Isaiah speaking, he's speaking for the land of Judah in the tribe of Judah, unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name will be called wonderful, so forth. So here we see what tribe Messiah would come from. He's talking about Judah. The Messiah will be born in Judah, and he'll be of the tribe of Judah. Next, Isaiah tells us that a son is given unto them as a gift to them, and that this son would have God's ordained government upon his shoulder. This would not have seemed odd to Isaiah, because people of that time often saw their kings as being adopted sons of God, and they were ruling in God's place. But what's interesting about the government being upon his shoulders is that it paints a picture of a king who wears a key or keys on his shoulders, signifying that he holds the keys to the entire kingdom, the keys to the treasury, the keys to the storehouses, the keys to everything that's available, sound familiar, (laughs) everything that's available in his kingdom. Isaiah also makes a prophetic reference to this kind of key in Isaiah 22:22, which says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, and he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. In other words, he would have total authority to rule over the house of David as her true king. This is exactly how Jesus referred to it in Revelation 3, 7. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write these words, the words of the Holy One the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts no one will open. He's talking about complete and total authority. And that is what only Christ has and that he gives to us. I like this because this is exactly the picture that Isaiah was trying to paint. On Christ's shoulder is all power and authority. And we get to have it too, Matthew 16, 19. Jesus says, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven that whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, if I open, it's open. If I shut it, it's shut. You can't change what I do. I have all power and authority. Because he says, I'm giving you the keys that are on my shoulders. The power and authority become yours. Our Messiah King has all the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and he chooses to give them to those who believe on him. Next, he comes to the five titles. The first title, Wonderful. And this word is not used as an adjective, but is a title. It refers to one who performs many wonders and miracles because he holds the keys to the kingdom and he can demonstrate the, the power and authority of the kingdom of God. The next is Counselor. And in several versions, they put wonderful and counselor together. They use wonderful as an adjective, but it's not. It was customary for every king to have five titles. So each one of these is a title. It is to display something wonderful <laughs> about who he is. The word counselor, I looked it up in the Webster's 1828. And it's a, any person who gives advice but properly, which means in the most strictest sense, to one who is authorized by natural relationship or by birth, office, or profession to advise another in regard to his future conduct and measures. That's what this word means. That as our counselor, he can tell us, hey, this is the guy I've chosen for you, even if he doesn't have a clue. (laughs) Hey, I know the future. You get your instructions from me. He is the one who is authorized to show us the future and to tell us how we can cooperate with that. There is only one who knows the future, and that is God himself. So his counsel is always right and righteous. Mark and I say this all the time, when you're working on a message, you're like, am I doing this right? Is this really where you want me to go? And he always says, I'm right. I'm always right. I know you're always right, but am I getting it right? (laughs) He says, I'm always right. And you hear him, and he repeats himself, and he repeats himself. Yes, you're getting it right. You're hearing me right. This reveals the omniscience of God found through and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he did not walk omnisciently while on the earth. He left his prerogatives, his royal prerogatives in heaven, but the risen Christ is God and has all omniscience. Next is the the mighty God. The word mighty here paints a picture of one who is called the champion. The mighty God, the champion God. He is the divine hero. That's what that means. He is a God above all other so-called gods. He is the God who fights for us and brings us into his victory. So this title reveals the omnipotence, the all-powerfulness of God found only through Christ. Also, it definitely makes the point that Messiah is actually, literally, God. He says it right there, (laughs) and exactly what he meant. Fourth title, The Everlasting Father. This speaks of one who is perpetually a father at all times and in all places and to all people. He is the everlasting. He isn't just the father who lasts forever. This speaks of his omnipresence, his ability to talk to somebody in China while he's talking to somebody in London at the same time. This is what it's talking about. And this can only be by the presence of God. God, Only God can be all places at one time. Now many say, wait a minute, Jesus is a father too? He's the father? What? That doesn't make any sense. He's the son. How can the son be the father? Well, let's look at um, John chapter 14. I have this for you in the remedy paraphrase. I really like it. And the Father and I will give you a helper to be with you forever. This is Jesus speaking. The Spirit of truth, who will enlighten your minds to comprehend the truth. Those who prefer the methods of this world, the methods of deceit, cannot accept him. Because having rejected the truth, they don't recognize or know him. But you know him, for you know me. And he represents all that I am. He will establish my character, methods, and principles within you. I will not abandon you and leave you as orphans. I will come back to you. An orphan is somebody who doesn't have parents. Jesus says, I will come back to you as a father. We see the same idea over in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Again, this is Jesus supposedly speaking, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. I will sing praise unto thee. He is with us here today. And again, I will put my trust in him, the Father. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given to me. We are also his children. He parents us. (laughs) Jesus told us that he and the Father are one. And we can see this also in John chapter 10, beginning with verse 27. My sheep value my ways, methods, and principles. I know them intimately, and they follow where I lead. I heal them from their terminal condition and give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No thug can kidnap them away from me. I love that. (laughs) My Father, who has placed their healing and recovery in my hands, is greater than all. No thief can kidnap them away from my Father. I and my Father are one. We are one in purpose character, and substance. And Jesus is also known as the perpetual, everlasting Father because He and the Father are one. You can't separate them. (laughs) And the word Father can also represent our first and primary source. He is our source of eternal life. He is our source of fellowship with the Father. He is our source of everything that's good. He is the everlasting, the perpetual Father. And then the fifth and final title is the Prince of Peace. The word prince in Hebrew can be translated as prince, captain, chief, general, or governor, all of which points to someone who has a place of rulership. So the Messiah was to be a ruler who governed in peace and brought forth peace to those in his kingdom. The word for peace is the Hebrew word shalom. And it's very much like the New Testament word for salvation or to be saved, sozoed, saved, healed, delivered, protected, provided for, and made whole. They're just equal in all of that. and We can see this when we look at the Hebrew word for shalom. Its primary definition, just like for salvation, for soteria, is safe. Safe in every area of our life. It goes on. That means well, happy, friendly. It also denotes welfare. That is health, prosperity, and peace. It includes the idea of having favor, being friendly with God, being perfect, prospering, resting, and being safe and well. Nothing missing, nothing broken. Shalom. Shalom is the equivalent of soteria. And this is God's will for us. I know lots of people get really mad. You, wouldn't, you would not think, why would people get mad that God wants you to be prosperous? He wants you to be well. He, this is his will for you. But no, they're sure that God wants to use sickness against you. He wants you to be poor. None of that helps the kingdom. <laughs> so he wants these things for us, but we only can re- receive them by faith, by believing the word. The truth is we can't really know our Jesus and our father apart from finding who they are in the written word of God. The more we know just how big and wonderful and powerful and all knowing our lovely Jesus is, the more we can experience all that he is in our lives, all that he has, all that he wants to show us more and more of who he is. That's really the point, us knowing him, recognizing just how good and faithful and present he is right now in our lives. Jesus isn't just with us. He was with Mary and Joseph, and he was with his disciples, but now he is in us. Yes, he is the foreshadowed Emmanuel, but oh, he is so much more. Jesus really is the Prince of Peace, not just for us, but for all of mankind. And it's only because of his precious blood having been poured out for us and his precious body having been broken for us that we can enter into peace with God. Because Jesus paid our sin that our Father can now declare us innocent and righteous and ready to receive all that Jesus is in his fullness, and we can begin to take hold of all that Jesus has purchased for us. Yes, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God has poured out his Spirit on all flesh. He is everywhere present, and all of mankind can still hear the cry of Isaiah. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God is with us. We are not abandoned. But that's not the whole story. Because now, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he lives within us. He sits on the throne of our heart as well as the throne in heaven. And he is all the wonderful things that we just saw that his five titles reveal. More than anything else, He is the real peace. We can have and live in real peace, real shalom in every part of our life. We can live in the nothing missing and nothing broken, all because of who Emmanuel really is. He is wonderful He is the miracle worker. He is the counselor that can tell us our future and how to avoid things that are bad for us (laughs) and live in the nothing missing, nothing broken. He is the mighty God. He is the champion God. He is our divine hero. He is all of those things, and he's at work for us. He is the everlasting perpetual father. He will father us, especially those of us who had bad fathers and we think that that's how God is. (laughs) Jesus is a much better father. And he is the Prince of Peace. Yes, he is the Emmanuel that was prophesied, but he is, oh, so much more. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you know the future. Even when you tell us things and we don't get it, we interpret it like Isaiah did. We we interpret it through our own understanding. And then later we find out, oh, that was you. (laughs) Ah, thank you, Father God, for showing us that you are the God who is altogether lovely, altogether wonderful, altogether powerful, altogether present. Father God, we ask that you open our eyes to see you better, to know you better. Help us to receive by revelation all that is glorious about you, that we would revel in your presence and in who you are. Father, we thank you that your word reveals that this is where we get our information. This is what we know is true. We don't have to listen to scoffers. We thank you, Father God, that you ordained a little girl, a virgin, to carry the Messiah and to bring forth salvation to all the world. Just like Isaiah's name says, Yahweh is salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word give, GIVE to 833-632-1315 or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy great grace such grace triumphant grace to you god bless you